This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Among the most iconic of all marine species in the aquarium hobby are the seahorses. From tiny dwarf species to large, majestically camouflaged sea dragons, children and adults alike have been fascinated by their appearance and behaviors. My guest today, Beth Privet, owner of Seahorse Corral in Florida, is a highly regarded seahorse breeder who was inspired to breed them to reduce wild collection and to make them more accessible to home hobbyists worldwide. Join us as we round up the latest information on seahorses with Beth Privet. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Beth Privet, owner of Seahorse Corral, a seahorse farm located near Tampa, Florida. Morning, Beth. Good morning, Roy. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. So you are quite the entrepreneur. Uh, I'd like to start with a few personal questions. Where are you from originally? I'm from the United Kingdom. And how did you end up here in the in the U.S.? It's a long story. I used to work on sailboats, and I came in and out of the U.S. many times, and finally I met and fell in love with an American. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. And when did you get your very first fish tank, and can you describe it? Well, my first fish tank wasn't really a tank. Um, when I was maybe three or four years old, I used to dig little holes in the family backyard and line them with plastic shopping bags in hopes that one morning I'd wake up and maybe find some fish in there. <laughs> and uh, Actually, I did. One of my brothers must have felt sorry for me because one morning I went out there and I actually found a goldfish. <laughs> incredible, incredible. So they actually do grow out of shopping bags. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't just a larval fish either. It was a fully grown goldfish. <laughs> That's, that's great. So what made you um, start farming? Well, I used to work on sailboats, as I said, and I fished all over the world. I used to fish from the back of the boats, and I caught all kinds of different species. But what I noticed as I sailed over the years was they were diminishing. There wasn't as many fish, and I wasn't catching the same sizes as I had done. So at first, I wanted to farm fish to raise protein for humans. I wanted to feed the world, but um, eventually I backed away from that idea and settled on seahorses. 
they are endangered. All seahorses are endangered and protected. I thought that that way I could be doing something beneficial for the ocean that I loved, but also trying to raise money for my family. I guess when you get asked whether seahorses are fish, why do you think people ask that and then what do you normally tell them? I do get asked that a lot. What I normally ask them is, what do they think they are then? And you'd be surprised at the responses. Um, some people think they're dragons. Some people think they're horses. But people ask it all the time, even people that should know better, the people that I ship with who ship fish all the time. Occasionally do. They say, well, we ship fish, but seahorses are not fish. So we'll talk a little bit more about your specific farm and the species you're, you're raising, but kind of in general, maybe give us a little bit of background on where seahorses live and a little bit about their life history. Seahorses live, all, I think they're in every ocean. They live all over the world. They do have depth requirements. They're not very deep. I think up to about 20 meters is as far deep as you'll find them. And they can be in the very shallow grasslands too. There's a Florida species, H. zosteri, that lives in a couple of inches if it wants to. So they're very widespread and um, everything from tropical to cold water. There's even a native species off of the United Kingdom. What does that look like? Very hairy. It's a little hairy dude. They have a wild population just off of Devon. They're called H. ramulosus, and they're, they're very hairy and spiky, and they get, I think the most they get is about three inches. Now, I know they have a lot of really interesting reproduction and uh, different ways of spawning or holding the eggs, that sort of thing. We'll talk more about that. Do they mate for life? Now, there's people that mention or talk about that. You know, what we've noticed, we have teenage tanks when we're growing out our young ones to get them ready to sell. We notice that as soon as they sex, which is when the males get pouches and the females get eggs, they will start courting each other. And at that stage, they are not a pair bonded. But what we find, kind of like with humans, I suppose, is once they find the right one, they tend to stick together. So it's a bit of a free-for-all in our cellar tanks. But once they settle down, you'll see the pair bonds start and then we can start pulling pairs out. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Which seahorse species do you currently raise? We raise two Florida native species, Hippocampus erectus and Hippocampus zosteri. That's the lined seahorse is the erectus and zosteri is the dwarf. And how big do they get? Well, the erectus, hmm, we've had up to about nine inches I think that's about as big as they get. Um, and then Zosteri, I think the most you'll get from the tip of his tail to the very tip of his coronet is probably three quarters of an inch. When you're them, are you kind of pulling their head to tail as, you know, as long as it goes or how are you measuring them? Yeah, it's a little bit tricky. The official way of doing it is from the tip of the coronet, which is right on the top of their head, to the very tip of their tail if you straighten it out. But it's a bit deceptive because most of the time the seahorse is cruising around with their tail curled up. So you say, oh, it's a three-incher, which is when their tail is extended. It really looks smaller in the water. So you've got those two species. What made you decide to work with those specific species? Well, they're Florida natives, so it was very easy for us to get hold of our original stock. There was lots of information about them in the wild. They just seem to do well here. If, if you can get hold of a native species to farm, they're used to the temperature, so we don't have to control our environment so much. They just seemed like a good species to start with. 
Now, were they pretty common in the hobby in terms of uh, wild-caught specimens then, or how did you determine in terms of the market how they would do and that sort of thing? Well, the seahorses were not that common in the hobby, but what we read was Erectus parents had the larger fry. Some species of seahorse, even though they may be bigger, the adult may be bigger than the Erectus, the babies come out very, very small, so they require um, a much smaller first feed size. And we knew that we were set up to raise baby brine shrimp as the first feed, so we needed a species too that when their babies came out, they would be ready to start on a larger feed size. So also Erectus is quite hardy. So they make a very good end product for pet keepers because they're easier to keep. And how about the Zosteri? Well, Zosteri were kind of a side thing. We, we didn't really think hard about getting them, but as it turns out, they're very popular, especially in um, desktop nano tanks. And they're very easy to keep. With Zosteride, the babies just come straight out of the father and hitch alongside and eat the same feed. So they require very little care and maintenance as far as we're concerned because we already have the baby brine shrimp around for the baby erectus. But for hobbyists, Zosteride represent a bit more time-consuming because they need that live feed mostly. So let's go ahead and talk sex then. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how the uh, erectus male and female kind of do their thing and, and, you know, some of the things that occur around that time and after? Well, okay, so let's say boy meets girl. We've got them in a, we usually separate them into pair groups. So we might have four or five pairs in one tank. And what we find is their courtship dance, they will do, the male and the female will do a dance together fairly frequently. But when he's coming close to giving birth, let's say he's already been pregnant and he's now going to give birth, he will start courting the female in earnest. She will be plumping up with eggs. So over the course of their two-week cycle, at 74 Fahrenheit, the male will take two weeks to gestate eggs. So as he's getting ready to give birth, he will start courting the female again, and she's beginning to lay down eggs, so she's plumping up. They will court in the water. They usually cruise around the bottom for a while. They'll chase each other around. At that point, they look very much like horses, actual land horses. They'll gallop about the bottom. They'll throw their heads back. They'll chase each other. And then finally, they'll start ascending and descending in the water column and getting closer and closer together. They'll go up and down a few times. They'll throw their heads back, and then they start to rub bellies. When they're good and ready, when she's her little ovipositor will start to show, it'll look like a little bump on the bottom of her belly, and he will be pouch flushing. He'll be making sure that his pouch is ready to accept those eggs. And we think that the pouch flushing does two things. It releases hormones into the water that make her eggs come down so that they're ready to come out of her ovipositor. It will also encourage other pairs in the water to start courting as well, but it changes the pH of his pouch apparently so that it's clean and the right pH for when those eggs pass through the water into his pouch. And when they're good and ready and they've got position, she'll have her ovipositor right over the whole of his pouch and at the right moment she'll squirt them directly into his pouch. That sounds really fascinating. So how about with the uh, the pygmy seahorse, the Zostere? 
that's a little different. They do pair bond and they do seem to do the dance, but we haven't noticed the same kind of elaborate courtship and glamorous dance like the erectus do. But it's also because they're much smaller. In, in the erectus, we can see we've got 24-inch tall tanks, so it's something very obvious when they're courting. Whereas the dwarves, you can have them in a tiny little tank and they still seem to manage to breed. So although the dance is going on and they're getting belly to belly, it doesn't make the kind of show that the erectus do. Do you have interference with the other pairs? I mean, are they real territorial at all or do they handle the breeding pair without a problem? We do see it. We've seen where there may be more males than females in a tank. And at certain points, the males will dive bomb the courting couple just to mess with them, really. We've also seen males just try to get right in there with the female when she's ready to squirt the eggs and try to be the recipient instead. Yeah, we have seen that. Generally, though, most of the time they'll let each other be and they'll all just get on with it with their own pair. We have had one female. She was irresistible to all males. We couldn't figure out why, but she, if you put her in a tank with any males, they would start courting her, even if they were already with an established pair. And that was just bizarre, and it's happened only once, and we don't know why, but most of the time they tend to stick to their own pair. So she was kind of like a little seahorse vixen. She was like the Marilyn Monroe of seahorses. <laughs> And we even saw an established pair. The male caught sight of her and went chasing after her, and he didn't get anywhere. The thing was, she was not aware of this power, and she really was quite shy. But um, she rejected this male, and he went back to his female, and she promptly nipped him. <laughs> nice. So how many babies or you know, juvenile or eggs, I guess, would come out of each species on average? I think it varies hugely. We've heard, well, I've read for Erectus, up to a thousand babies at a time. I have never seen anything close to that. The most we've seen in a big batch of babies is 300. And as far as dwarves, I have read up to 18 babies, but we have seen probably at most 10 from a batch. Also, it depends on how successful the transfer of the eggs is. Sometimes they'll miss or they'll be too many for his pouch. We've actually seen where a female has completely filled the male's pouch and then they've overflowed or there's been an interruption they've got caught in a strong flow all of a sudden or there's somebody's disturbed them and then they'll miss so only partially the eggs will go in so now the male has these eggs in his pouch how long does it take for them to actually develop and how hard are the babies to raise afterward and what do you do well, the eggs go in and they're fertilized at the entrance to his pouch and they nestle into his pouch lining where they're nourished by fluids until they're ready to come out, which is around two weeks at 74 degrees Fahrenheit. At that point, they will he pouch flushes. Some of them will shoot them all out at the same time and some of them will shoot them out gradually. So it may take him a day to get them all out, but usually it'll be done in a couple of hours. How easy is it to raise them? What do you have to do for the babies once they come out? They're pretty tricky. Well, we think they are. What we've noticed with Erectus is that no two batches seem to do the same thing. So what we've concluded is you just have to think like a seahorse. 
Some batches will come out smaller and you have to start them with a smaller feed size. Some of them will feed voraciously straight off the bat. There are some basic rules of thumb is to have air stones in the baby tank. You take them out of the adult tank and you put them in a separate tank and you try to keep them off the top and off the bottom of the water. So you want them right in midstream. At that point, they're considered pelagic. They're in the water column and they're cruising for food right there. But they need more food than you can shake a stick at. They need to actually bump into it and then they'll snap at it and they'll feed. But we still haven't got one cement recipe to always raise a batch successfully. You really just have to get to know baby seahorses and figure out what this particular batch need at that time. So without doubt, that's the biggest question we have from customers because our seahorses are healthy when we ship them and most people want a pair. And sure enough, they'll get babies and then they're calling. We try to help as much as we can, but what we find is it's often just trial and error until you're observant enough and you understand enough to figure out what they need as you go along. Well, that is a lot of great information. I have plenty more questions for you. Let's go ahead and take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with Beth Privet of Seahorse Corral after these messages from our sponsors. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations and treat bowls, cups and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back continuing our conversation with my guest, Beth Privet of Seahorse Corral. So you gave us a lot of good information, a little bit about seahorses in general, some fascinating information on how they actually mate and hold the eggs, the males. What would you consider, you know, you mentioned a few, but what are some of the greatest challenges of raising seahorses? And, and also, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, for a hobbyist, you know, some considerations for them. But let's start with some of the big challenges. You mentioned a few, but for you, what would you list as all the challenges with raising seahorses? Well, I think the biggest thing about the babies is, from what I'm told, baby seahorses and adults do not have a spleen, so their immune system is slightly more delicate than most other fish. It's particularly pronounced in the babies. So we run our hatchery more like a hospital than a fish farm. We have to keep everything extremely clean. Our staff have to douse themselves with bleach and alcohol before they start work. Everything is kept disinfected. So we run it like an intensive care unit in a hospital. And even then, when you're putting so much food into the tanks, because they have to have enough food that they can just snap and catch it, food volume and the muck that goes in with food, even if you feed clean that food every time you put it in, you're still adding bacteria and muck every day. So that's our biggest issue probably is just keeping them healthy because of their immune system. 
And you mentioned, I guess, Brian Tripper Artemia. So are both the Pygmies and the Lion Seahorses getting that, both sets of babies? Yes. Now, in terms of water quality parameters, talk a little bit about a hobbyist. First of all, is this a fish that a beginning hobbyist should consider, or is it more for intermediate hobbyists? What would your thoughts be? As far as the adults, our captive bred erectus are easy to keep. They eat frozen food. They're healthy. They're used to aquarium life. They love it. They're inquisitive. They're active. So as far as keeping the adults, yeah, I would say a beginner could do that as long as they've got good water quality in their tank and they don't have any aggressive fish in there that are just going to keep nipping on them. But as far as most hobbyists, like to try and raise babies. When you get into the baby production, that's when a lot of people run into problems. Let's go back to the frozen foods. What would you consider a good balanced diet then if someone is keeping one of the erectus? You know, obviously you can maybe too much of one thing and not enough of another, but what would be a good balance for them? What we say, uh, we feed us just about 100% on the frozen mysis. As they're growing, when the babies get to be a couple of days old, we start adding very finely chopped frozen mysis to their diet so that they're actually getting the live baby brine shrimp mixed in with, we call it milkshake, it's a mushed up frozen mysis goo, but that goes in as well. So the idea is to switch them from the live feed over to the frozen feed as fast as possible. And mysis actually does contain just about all they need. We enrich it sometimes with um, algae paste to bring the color out. We add sometimes some immune stimulants like beta-glucan. But generally, as they get older, their immune system kicks in and we can switch them entirely over to frozen mysis. As a treat, if we have it around, we'll give them some enriched adult brine shrimp. We enrich it with salcon, garlic. We use a lot of garlic. That's a good uh, feed stimulant, and it also stimulates their immune system. So we treat them with live feed, but generally they can be fed on the frozen and do just fine. Are frozen mice pretty readily um, accessible for hobbyists? Yeah, you can find frozen mice in the freezer department of your local fish store. And if you're keeping a lot of um, seahorses, you can actually buy it by the pound. You can buy the flat packs. And if you can't find it, you can often order it from your local fish store. They'll get it in for you because they're often using it themselves to feed their stock. And that's just a type of small shrimp, right? Correct. There's two types. There's a freshwater and a saltwater species, and mostly it's the saltwater species that's available to the hobbyist, but they're both good. So let's talk about a setup then, a tank. What would you tell your hobbyist that's looking, let's just start with the erectus because you said those are fairly simple. What sort of tank setup would be ideal for a seahorse group or, or, you know, a pair? Well, if you want to breed them, you need some height. Because of the elaborate courtship dance, the rule of thumb is three times the length of the seahorse of tank height so that they can achieve their courtship dance. So if you have a six-inch seahorse, you're going to need an 18-inch tank. Also, the rule of thumb is even if you start with a little tiddly two-inch juvenile seahorse, they're going to grow. So what most people say is 10 gallons tank volume per seahorse to allow them room to settle in. Also, they like to cruise around. You know, they like to have a hitch here and a hitch there. If you have a reef tank with a strong flow, they like that too. They'll ride a flow, but you want to make sure you've got a nice quiet hitch somewhere so that they can just chill out and relax. And when you say hitch, what do you mean? 
Well, seahorses, they don't cruise around all the time. They like to stop and kind of hide, really. They're actually not strong swimmers, and they don't have teeth. So the best way they've got to avoid being eaten is to hide. And also, they're hunters. Naturally, in the wild, they'd be hunting wild copepods and amphipods. So they kind of like to sneak about. If you put a, something that they can wrap their tail around comfortably and just chill out, they'll go there. And, and if you want to observe them, if you put your hitches towards the front of the tank, they'll come and hitch there, and you can watch them doing their thing, and they'll be happy and settled, and they won't waste a lot of energy frantically moving around the tank looking for a hitch. Now, would you recommend any certain species, other non-seahorse species, that they would be compatible with, you know, that wouldn't be as aggressive? Sure. There's actually on our website, we have a whole list of creatures that will go well with seahorses and creatures that will not. I could say better what won't go with them because there's a lot that will as long as they're peaceful. What won't is things like your puffers, sharks, clownfish, the false percula will, but the ocellaris will not. <laughs> so there are different ones that will and won't. And for a specific list, there's a very good article by Will Wooten, which tells you them all. But most fish will as long as they're not particularly aggressive. Okay, and I pulled up your website, and we'll, we'll make sure to have that on your guest bio page on Aquariumania. You've got a lot of beautiful horses, all sorts of colors. Can you tell us a little bit about the different colors that they have? Is that something they would have in the wild normally, and describe some of the colors, varieties that you guys sell? Well, in the wild, they seem to be able to do just about anything. They can be red, they can be orange. I've seen pictures of purple. Seahorses make color by when they eat the creatures that they prey on in the wild, those amphipods and copepods will have been grazing on the reef. So their guts contain algae paste from what they've been grazing on. So the seahorse gets that algae paste in the diet and then they can use that to change the color of their skin using chemicals in their body. So they seem to be able to reflect the colors of their environment very well. But we have been able to breed for color in our stock and we've been able to find that we can get yellow, we can get orange, we can get brown, we can get highly patterned, we can get black. But red, I cannot get red. And I have um, had customers, I have sent them a black seahorse and they'll call me in two weeks and say, you know, it went red. And I am so jealous. I do not know how some colors come about and we have not been able to breed for it. But um, in the wild, they seem to be able to achieve all sorts of colors. We do have one strain of seahorse, we call it our oddball, who starts out black and will turn white over time. So it's not an albino. It's not something that is born white and stays white. These guys are born black and they lose color and they're fascinating to watch because the color will leave gradually and there's a beautiful pearly white skin underneath. Sometimes they're pink and you can actually see through them, but we don't know why that happens. We've tried breeding for that, selecting for it, and we actually almost bred it out of our stock because it's not something that happens a straight homozygous recessive gene, which means it doesn't go from parent to offspring like blue eyes in humans. This is something that misses a generation and might pop back up in the second generation if you're lucky. But we find that sporadic. It's not something we've been able to breed for with any success. So are they that color when they're juveniles or is it something that happens over time with at least with the seahorses you are raising? With a batch of babies, we find we will get, say, 70% are black. They're going to stay black and they do not change. We might get 
20% that our color changes. That is, they will change color according to the tank. So we can make them go orangey, we can make them go yellow, but their default color is brown. If the tank isn't really rigged up for color, they'll kind of resort to their brown or black coloration. And those ones usually are highly patterned. And then we'll have colors which are born colored and they stay colored and they don't seem to change from tank to tank either. We find that color is something we have been able to breed for, which is kind of not the common opinion of a lot of people. Most people think that coloration is just a question of camouflage, but in our observation, that's not the case. It actually is something that you can breed for, and we've certainly been able to increase the percentage of colors we get per batch by breeding for color with colored parents. So um, it's definitely something we haven't got really to the bottom of, but we definitely think that color is something that you can select for and you can change as well. Do you have the same type of color variety with the dwarfs as well, the dwarf seahorses? No, not so far. We haven't seen them readily change colors like the Erectus, and we haven't spotted in our stock any that are kind of randomly different colored. Like with the Erectus, we might get a batch with one that's just completely unusual, whereas with the dwarfs, they seem to be much more uniform. The trouble is we don't have the time or the staff to really investigate that. We would love to do more research into the dwarfs because I think there's a lot more there to be learned. Okay, so that's something maybe down the road we'll be seeing. Absolutely, yes. Let's maybe step back a little bit, talk just real briefly on kind of the conservation side of it. Did the oil spill we had in the Gulf a while back, did that do anything to our Florida seahorse populations? You know, not as far as we can tell. I have colleagues and friends who work in the Keys. Some of them are divers, some of them are sailors. And they're saying, no, the dwarves seem to be coming just the same as they ever did. The environment seems to be fine. And there doesn't seem to be any problem there. I don't know if it's the same with other fish. From what I'm reading, other larval fish do seem to be affected. But so far, we're not seeing a drop in the dwarf or the erectus populations because of the oil spill. I think some of our listeners may be familiar with this, but obviously there are major, major conservation concerns because of use in the Asian culture. Can you tell us just real briefly about what a lot of Asia has used seahorses for? Yes, I think it has a lot to do with the courtship dance because that's so erotic. The uh, seahorses are, are used in Asian medicine as a, as a pick-me-up and as an aphrodisiac and as a tonic. It's to do with yang. According to Asian medicine, you're balanced with your yin and your yang, which is your male and female energies. And if you are lacking in male energy, the yang, you need to eat some seahorses. Ah, so uh, what do they taste like? Have you ever actually eaten one? I have never eaten a seahorse. I have actually tried their eggs. The eggs are good. They taste buttery, a little bit fishy, kind of like a salmon egg. We had some spilled ones on a tank bottom once, and they were so pretty that myself and a friend slurped them up. Gotcha. So obviously you mentioned a lot of cleaning involved. How often do you have to clean your systems, and I assume you're fairly thorough when you do that? 
We clean all the time. We clean after every feed. Our hatchery, like I said, is run like an intensive care unit. So we are constantly going through and uh, we siphon either to waste, which means that it is disposed of, or we siphon through filters so that it goes back into the system. But we clean all the time in our hatchery and then twice a day we clean our, our cellar tanks, which is where we may have a lot of seahorses in one tank. And then once a day we'll clean our broodstock tanks which is where our adult breeding pairs are. We keep them super clean and we keep our water quality optimal, which means there's no ammonia, no nitrites, no nitrates, and we try to keep the temperature steady as well as the salinity. What salinity is optimal for uh, the two species you raise? For the dwarves, we tend to keep them at about 30 parts per thousand. And the erectus, we vary. The adults and the growing ones, the adolescents, we keep them at about 30 parts per thousand salt. But in the hatchery, because of the risk of ciliates, uh, tiny little organisms that settle on the skin, we keep the salinity lower at about 25 parts per thousand because that keeps the ciliate population down, but it doesn't seem to harm the baby seahorses. And I have one final question. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but what is your most popular pony or seahorse? Oh, well, without doubt, the bright orange and the bright yellow. Everybody loves color. There's nothing finer than a beautiful seahorse tank full of colored seahorses. Well, thank you very much again. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thanks very much to our guest, Beth Privet, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Beth, do you have any final words of wisdom or, or information that would be useful for our listeners? Well, a seahorse in every tank. That's what we think. Take care. Buy captive bread. Don't buy the wild court. Sounds good. Thanks again. Please be sure to check out Beth's Seahorse webpage links. We'll have those posted on her guest page on Aquariumania. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquariumania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you love animals and have ever thought about becoming a veterinarian, be sure to check out my book, An Animal Life, a novel written by me and three close friends and inspired by our time in veterinary school. Go to animallife.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and definitely consider seahorses in your tank. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.